0: left AT's campus and walked down to uh, FW Woolworths. Now keep in mind, I'd been there a number of times before, but this one was totally different. And it was like uh, uh, we, we were invisible. They totally ignored us and they went around and, and waited on other people, but not with us. So it took 176 days of there day about of that kind of movement to integrate world wars we all have defining moments those moments don't define us what we do in those moments that's what defines us
1: all rise all rise the honorable chief
2: justice and, and associate justices, justices. Uh, the oh, yes oh yes oh yes the supreme court of north carolina all
0: of our citizens across the state depend upon us to uphold and protect both the spirit and the letter of the law, and to always apply the law fairly and impartially to every litigant who comes before this court.
1: God save the state and this honorable court. Hi, I'm Bree Gowens, and this is All Things Judicial a podcast from the North Carolina Judicial Branch. This episode is special because we're celebrating Black History Month with the true civil rights hero, Mr. Clarence Henderson. During the civil rights movement, Mr. Henderson showed a lot of faith and courage by participating in the lunch counter sit-in at F.W. Woolworths in Greensboro. Mr. Henderson shares his story from that day and how the sit-in changed his whole life. Mel Wright from the Chief Justice's Commission on Professionalism interviewed Mr. Henderson, And this interview is part of the Commission's historical video series. Chief Justice Paul Newby kicks off this episode.
2: Hello, I'm Chief Justice Paul Newby. Article 1, Section 1 of the State Constitution echoes the timeless assurances of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously stated that these assurances represented a promissory note to be cashed by every American. On February 2nd, 1960, Greensboro, North Carolina was the location where that promise was challenged. On that day, brave young men sat down at a lunch counter at a Warworth department store. They'd been denied service on the sole basis of their skin color. Their courageous acts furthered a movement which gave fuller meaning to the phrase equal rights under the law. I'm honored to introduce Mr. Clarence Henderson. He was one of those brave young men who sat at that lunch counter and became a pioneer of the 1960s civil rights movement.
0: I was born in a little place called Townville, South Carolina uh, on a farm. Um, and my father was a sharecropper there. And uh, I can remember being about three or four years of age, uh, trying to help my mother pick cotton as she walked through the cotton fields. Uh, my father actually was a sharecropper. The guy that he worked for, he and the guy became very good friends. and. Uh, Ironically, when I was born, they had become such good friends that he named me after uh, the guy that he sharecropped for, who was actually white. And I believe in divine intervention, and I think it was dropped down in my spirit to be a part of helping bridge the gap between the races, and ever since I've been uh, old enough to realize that I've been involved in that kind of thing.
3: At some point, did you leave the farm and go to Greensboro?
0: Yeah, uh, my father decided he wanted to move to Greensboro. He had a number of his relatives that moved to Greensboro and we moved to Greensboro when I was about four or five years of age. And uh, of course, that being the the era of time known as Jim Crow, we moved into a black neighborhood, probably the roughest neighborhood in all of Greensboro. And uh, we stayed in that area on Mars Street for a couple of years uh, when I, went to the third grade, my father moved us over near UNCG's campus on Oakland Avenue, which at that time was a women's college. And so even though I had moved out of the quote-unquote black neighborhood, um, I was bused past a number of schools where they had the segregated schools where whites went to school, back over into the same school I was going in in the beginning. And so actually, I was bused all my life. I never went to an integrated school, uh, but had the occasion, especially when we moved up on uh, Oakland Avenue, uh, I had one friend over there um, that was black and uh, the re- we, were, we were in a cul-de-sac surrounded by white families. And what happened is that uh, we had a huge yard and those, some of those black kids would come, some of the white kids would come over and play with us after we got out of school. So at, at lunchtime, I would play with the black kids at school, and then when I came home, I played with the white kids. And that's when I learned that uh, uh, racism is not something a person is born with. It's something that they're taught because uh, their parents didn't know where they were. We played all kinds of sports, and we never had any problems.
3: Right. Do you remember going shopping with your mother, and at that time, how were things in Greensboro?
0: Yeah, well, uh, Greensboro then is really sort of like it is now kind of laid back and uh, used to go with my mother downtown Greensboro down to Woolworth specifically uh, along with other places and going to Woolworth as a young kid and we would go downstairs and we saw I saw two uh, bathrooms once in color and one in white and two water fountains, one in color and one in white. And I would look at the water coming out of those water fountains and they looked alike so I would wonder what the difference was. So when you went upstairs, they had a lunch counter uh, and certain lunch counter was segregated. Uh, 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 we could not, uh, we could order food, but had to order, order to go uh, and pay the same price. And so um, I went through that for a number of years and I think subconsciously when the opportunity arose uh, uh, is when I uh, started another part of my life when I was 18 years of age.
3: Let's talk about that when you were 18 years of age. And
0: you mentioned Woolworths. Mm-hmm.
3: Tell us what happened.
0: Well, um, when I was growing up, um, I used to watch the A&T band. I fell in love with A&T through their bands. As a matter of fact, I played in the band initially when I went over there. And at 18 years of age, when I was a freshman, uh, I was sitting in the lounge uh, at Bluefield Library. And Ezell Blair, who was one of the original guys that started the, uh, the the Woolworth City, came and told me what they had done on the first day and asked me if I wanted to participate. And I told him, yes, I, I wanted to participate. And he said, now, if uh, they serve us, uh, then I'll pay for the meal because I didn't have any money. And obviously, he still owes me a meal because <laughs> I never actually ate at that lunch counter. Uh, but uh, what had happened with me was that uh, the things I'd gone through as a, as a young child growing up gave me the initiative, the desire to go and help, begin to change things, and that's how it started uh, to occur. And so, those guys, the four guys that started initially, stayed on campus. My parents could not afford for me to stay on campus, so I didn't find out about it until the second day. And uh, what they did on the first day was they came back to campus and started to recruit people, and that's how I got involved. And so we left Ant's campus and walked down to uh, F.W. Woolworths. Now keep in mind, I'd been there a number of times before, but this one was totally different. Walking into F.W. Woolworths, not knowing how I was gonna come out, in a vertical position, handcuffs going to jail, or perhaps in a prone position, going to the hospital even more, that changed my total outlook on life. And I began to realize that we all have defining moments Those moments don't define us. What we do in those moments, that's what defines us. So we walked in uh, the Woolworths that day, sat down at a lunch counter and um, caught Woolworths again by surprise. And uh, um, there were a number of people came in looking and one of the um, members of the um, uh, police department came in and looked around and didn't say anything. And uh, so we kept sitting there and it was like uh, uh, we, we were invisible. They totally ignored us and they went around and, and waited on other people, not with us. So it took 176 days of there about of that kind of movement to integrate Woolworths. And so what happened was that I can remember at one point in time where some 500 students or, students or people were in Woolworths as a part of the movement. And on the side where Woolworths, Woolworths is is that what you had was that people that were for the city and on the opposite side were people that were, uh, were, were against us. We were very fortunate that um, there was not uh, any death occurred. Some people went to jail. Uh, we faced down the KKK, had a bomb threat, uh, but we were very persistent and said that we're going to stay here until it changes. And what actually happened is that when uh, A&T went on break, then some of the Dudley High students took over and uh, continued to sit in until it was uh, uh, World Wars opened up. As a matter of fact, we had a few students from uh, uh, Greensboro College, uh, Gifford College, uh, white kids came in and sat down also to um, uh, participate in the move with us. And uh, we we Woolworth was picked because it was a chain store, and we were hopeful that it would catch on, and it did. It went all, all down the southeastern part of, of, North, of United States, even as far as way as, as New York. Even though they were integrated there, they participated in the movement also. But one of the particular things I found out later on was that it was it was also about economics, because. Um, Woolworths integrated. One of the things they lost some $200,000 in that time, which would be equivalent right now, maybe $2 million or there about whatever it was. And the other thing is that there was a lady that was uh, the president for, for uh, Bennett College, uh, Dr. Willoughby Player, And she had a, a, a credit card with uh, uh, Ellis Stone across the street. And she went in there and she said that this, uh, I, she cut up a credit card and said that I will not shop here any longer until you allow us to sit uh next door I'm in mean, at, at Woolworths. and so all these things precipitated uh but even though we uh, uh, it was initiated by uh people in, in, in Greensboro we were one of the last to be integrated uh there were a number of meetings with uh uh the mayor and city council but um never came to fruition until finally they they had, think it had three people that actually that worked there as employees, they were the ones that um, actually were the first blacks to eat there. I never uh, ate there. Um,
3: but but at some point, they did start serving blacks.
0: Oh, yes. uh huh. And see, the, the, the bottom line is that it's kind of ironic in that it was 40 years before I was recognized for having participated in the movement, but I never complained because I didn't do it for any notoriety. I did it because of the right thing to do. And uh, so it's sort of like Moses went around the wilderness for 40 years. I had a lot of time to do other things in my life that helped me prepare for uh, where my journey is right now.
3: And you went in the military.
0: Yes, um, when I, uh, I was in, at a for one year, and I, I took a job uh, during the summer to go back to a um, and and uh, actually to earn money at A&T. But uh, I had an unfortunate situation where I was working in a, uh, a nightclub, if you will put my age up. And uh, there was a service and a guy cut me from behind, so uh, I was not able to go back to school. So I stayed around and, uh, Greensboro for a number of years, maybe two or three years, and finally said decided I was going to leave Greensboro and go to New York and never come back again except to, to visit my parents. But one of the things that was going on during that time, they had a thing called the draft. <laughs> and uh, I got a call from my mother one day. She said, I just received a letter. Uh, they were still living in Greensboro from Uncle Sam saying that they I uh, wanted to, to talk to you. And I said, I'm not very concerned because I'm in New York and I know where I am. Well, about six weeks from then, I got that, that same letter, a duplicate, uh, when I lived on 117th Street in New York. And they uh, Uncle Sam told me that he wanted to, to check me out to see if I was eligible for the draft. And so I went down, I think it was Whitehall Street in Brooklyn. It were three of us that was from Greensboro that uh, went down. I was the only one that was drafted. So from there, I was in for this culture shop because I'm living in, in, in Harlem, living the life that I thought I wanted to live. And all of a sudden, they said, we're going to put you on a twin engine plane. the next which way I wanted to go. The first time I'd ever flown in all my life and it flew me from there to uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And uh, I went through my basic training there. So I'm living in the north uh, living a, 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 the life and all of a sudden I'm back in the South, not voluntarily. So I always, I tell people, never say never. So he took me to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, but Uncle Sam wasn't through me, with me yet because from there, he took me to Fort Gordon, Georgia. From there, he took me to Fort, uh, Rook, Alabama, where I spent 16 months down there when George C. Wallace was the governor. And I could tell you some story with curly hair on my head if I had any.
3: You were talking about curly hair. Okay. I don't see any curly hair today. What were you going to tell me about curly hair?
0: Uh, I'm glad you asked me that. <laughs> uh, one of the things that happened is that uh, when uh, I was uh, stationed at Fort uh, Rucker, Alabama, they were passing these little cards out uh, about the size of a business card. And I wish I would have kept one, kept one of them. It would probably worth something because the card said, um, put a white man in the White House. vote for George C. Wallace, not that end-lover, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Mm. So I've, uh, the only difference between where I was, uh, at Fort Worth, Alabama and being in a place like Vietnam is that I didn't have any any weapons to fight that, that kind of thing off. Another situation happened is that, um, um, I was the, uh, assistant mess sergeant, uh, in the, uh, place where we ate, and I was in charge of 16 GI and 16 civilian KP's. And of course, so you had black KP's there and white KP's. And one of the black guys came to me when they came to Miss sergeant's office. He says, I don't want to work with that white guy no longer." long run. I said, well, why is that? And he said that the white guy said to him they ought to kill all the N men and say the N women for breeding purposes. And so I went out and I asked him, he never said that he said it, because I might not be sitting here now. But those are some of the kinds of things that I went through uh, when I was there at uh, uh, Fort Rook, Alabama. Matter of fact, there was a little place. We were going to a club downtown in uh, Dothan, Alabama. And right outside of the fort was a place called Enterprise. And they had one deputy sheriff there, one sheriff there. And we came outside the gate one evening. And uh, we had a flat tire. And so we're down there changing the flat tire, and all of a sudden we look up and we see uh this white policeman. He says, What are you boys doing? And in my mind I'm thinking, it's obvious what we're doing with changing the tire. And what he said, I can remember it like it was yesterday. He said, You need to have that tire changed before the sun goes down. I don't know what would happen if we did get the tire changed. And so um after going through those kind of things, now um they paid my way uh they t- they 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 flew me from New York to Fort Jackson, but when I got out of the military, they gave me just enough money to get back to Greensboro and send it back where I came from, but I didn't argue because I was glad to get out of there uh and so I have uh, drawn upon those kind of things to re- the to talk with people about the America that was versus the America that is now it has changed dramatically for the better and let me say this uh. If I had a choice, I would still want to be born in, 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 the United States of America, the greatest country in the world. Not perfect, imperfect, but the greatest country in the world, uh, where you have, we have more freedom here than we have anyplace else. Uh, and we need to realize when it comes to freedom, that freedom is not free. You have to defend it almost on a daily basis for our individual rights. So, uh, Hopefully, a part of my history will let people know that uh, in America, you have to take advantage of the opportunity that America the American office because the opportunity is there, but you have to take advantage of it.
3: And, and at one point, you were uh, a part of the Martin Luther King movement.
0: Yeah. During
3: that time that you're talking about.
0: Well, well actually, what happened was is that there were a number of years before that, um, uh, I came back to Greensboro uh, and use my GI Bill to go back and complete my degree. Because the first year I went there, I I, I chose uh, the the major of chemistry simply because one of my friends uh, chose chemistry and I couldn't stand chemistry. So when I came back out, when I came out, I decided I would go into business administration. And uh, I took a full-time load. I uh, actually worked uh, eight, ten hours a night, went to school full time and graduated from A&T in less than two years. Just dropped my entire social life. And after I completed that, I uh, worked a number of jobs. Finally wound up going into the financial services industry, where I participated in another uh, type of movement to begin to teach people how a lot of times the financial services industry will take advantage of you. And I started out with a company, uh, it was named A. L. Wheels, and later on they changed it over to Prime America. And so it taught me a great deal about it, the economy and how America, America the American economy works. Uh, but back to when I was in A I went to AT the second time, uh, I started back I started there in nineteen sixty nine. And about March of there about, uh, there was a ride on campus. And uh it taught me the difference between a peaceful movement and a movement that, that was violence. And at that point, Governor Scott, who was the governor of the state of North Carolina, and he said, if the riot does not cease, I will bring tanks on this campus and I will level the, the campus. And so what would have happened to all of the students there if that would have happened, nobody would have gotten an education. And I was a mentor, member of a veterans club and we had a meeting. One uh, of the guys said, well, why don't we uh, we, you know, we came out of the military, we know how to use weapons. And some of us have weapons. Why don't we go out there and and uh, defend the campus? And I said, with well, what? I said, you're t- talking about 38 to 45. These guys got all this artillery. And so, thankfully, that, that did not occur. Uh, but um, what we saw there was there was still that Jim Crow type of mentality. You see, when I look at uh, Segregation of Jim Crow is just one step up from uh, slavery. But the resiliency of the, of the black community has shown itself uh, as readers its head out during the time uh, from slavery time up to now, but they don't talk about that. They, they want to call us victims, uh, survivors. I'm not either one of those. I am an overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of my testimony, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you don't know the history, you're doomed to repeat it. Uh, it seems to be that, that, that every generation thinks that history began with them and it really didn't. And so when you go back and read the truth, you find truth is stranger than fiction because you see the courage that was required uh, that we need to have that same kind of courage now to, to continue to defend this country.
1: Today's interview is part of All Things Judicial, a North Carolina Judicial Branch podcast. You can learn more about us at nccourts.gov. If you like what we do on our podcast, please share with your friends and give us five stars on your favorite podcast app. We appreciate y'all for sharing our work. It really helps. I'm Brie Goins with the Communications Office, and I want to remind you, keep all things judicial. Thanks for listening.